Thank you so much, Dan, Janice, David. Beautiful music tonight. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Between last Sunday night and this Sunday night, we will have covered the what's traditionally called the first missionary journey of Paul. I suggested that journey two and journey three aren't really so much a journey because he spends so much time in, let's say, Ephesus or Corinth that it's really not a traveling through type missionary trip like the first missionary trip is. But you remember at the beginning of Acts 13, the Holy Spirit said, set aside Saul and Barnabas for me for the work to which I've called them. You remember that they were having so many Gentiles converted in Antioch that they sent Barnabas to check it out. And Barnabas believed that their faith was genuine. And he went and got Paul or Saul. And Paul or Saul stayed with a whole year there teaching them and instructing them. And then, well, the Holy Spirit says, we need to set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. The church laid hands on them and prayed and sent them out on a missionary trip. Let's put up our journey here. We've made half this trip. We started there in Antioch, Syria, Antioch, went over Seleucia, and that was a port city closest to Antioch. And then they traveled down to Salamis, which is the closest port on Cyprus. Remember that Barnabas, I said last week, was of Cyprian birth. Or he was a Cypriote. And so uh, there have been other witnesses on Cyprus Island before. We know that just a little bit. And then he went to Paphos there, traveled across that island, which would have been quite a journey, sharing Christ as we go. We find about a, a Roman uh, leader who is converted and then goes up there to Pamphylia and then goes to up there Antioch, see the other Antioch here, that's Pisidian Antioch, not the same where we started at Antioch in Syria. You remember, that's where we spend most of our focus there in chapter 13, that he preaches in Pisidian Antioch, and some of the Jews believe that Jesus is Messiah, and others reject him, and he comes back the next uh, uh, Sabbath, and he shares again, and there uh, is a jealousy because all the Gentiles that show up and the whole city is shown up. And so uh, there's an official, well, disinvitation to Paul and Barnabas from that city. And this, uh, we don't need you anymore. You need to get out of here. And so they flee and they go over to Iconium. And if you look at the end, see, we went over here to Iconium. If you look at the end of chapter 13... Uh, one thing happens here as they travel from Pisidian Antioch. But at the end of chapter 13, you remember, uh, look at verse 45. But the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy, and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you repudiate it and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now, what I want you to see is that turning to the Gentiles has to do on a city-by-city -city basis. So it sounds so definitive, but when we look over in chapter 14, we can certainly conclude that it doesn't mean that, that Paul's given up 
given up hope on the Jews or he's not going to try to witness in the synagogues anymore. He's speaking to the Jews in that particular city that he is turning from them. He has not given up on the Jews altogether. For he says, in quoting Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and verse 47 there, I've placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. All along, ancient Israel was to be a bearer of the good news and bring hope not just to one nation, but to all nations. For in you, Abraham, we read in Genesis, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, the Gentiles heard it, 1348. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews, the devout women of promise and the leading men of the city instigated a persecution of Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now, when you see their devout women of prominence and leading men of the city, uh, this is a city council. They've been voted out. They're, they're, they're not welcome anymore. This is official business here. The leaders of the city have said, no, nah, we don't enjoy that anymore. And so verse 51, they do a symbolic act. They take their shoes off and shake the dust of their feet off and protest, and they went to Iconium. Now, you remember that when a Jew would travel through Gentile territory, uh, to not find themselves unclean, the Jew would shake the dust, the Gentile dust from the Gentile village off his feet. And uh, it was kind of uh, a way of saying of disassociation with the Gentiles. Well, Saul and Barnabas turned that on its head and they tell the Jews we're going to the Gentiles and they shake the Jewish dust off their feet. And so what I want you to notice is verse 51, and they went to Iconium. So now we pick up here from last week that we're going to Iconium and starting over in a new village and trying to find our way there. Now, getting to Iconium would have been, uh, to put it in perspective, that's about a 90-mile trip there from Antioch there to uh, uh, Iconium. It was on the Sebastian Way, which was the route that connected Ephesus to Syria. And it had Roman influence upon it. The, the real name of the, of the city was Claudia Iconium, uh, or Claude Iconium. Uh, you see the name Claudius in there. It was a big deal when a, a village or a city was given the name of a ruling emperor in AD 41. The emperor Claudius named it Claude Iconium after himself. And so this city, shortened to Iconium, bears the emperor's name of, of Claudius. And so it, that's a big deal. Well, it's, it's a, a, an official move from the Jews to the Gentiles and from Pisidian Antioch now over to Iconium. Well, verse 2. Well, verse 1, it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue. So there's proof that the going to the Jews or going to the synagogue first was the custom of the missionaries of the Jews together and spoke in a manner that a great multitude believed, both Jews and Greeks. So as usual, when he goes to the synagogue, he presents Rabbi Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one. Now there is a response the response is some believe, some don't believe, but in this case, a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believe. But 
verse 2. The Jews who disbelieved stirred up in the minds of the Gentiles and bittered them against the brethren. There were some Jews who did not believe, and not only did they not believe, but they poisoned the mind of the Gentile populace against the Christian witness. But instead of being intimidated, look at verse 3, they were, therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with the reliance upon the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done. There are miracles taking place here. Not only could he proclaim that this wonder worker Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. Well, there's Saul and Barnabas are doing their own signs and wonders. Sometimes you'll see a church named Signs and Wonders Church. There's an emphasis on the acts of the Holy Spirit or miraculous things. And so signs and wonders were being done by their hands. And the multitude, the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. The reality is this. Every time and every place that the gospel is preached, there's division. Every time that the gospel is preached, there's division. Now, you might not like that about the message of the good news, but that's the reality. Every time it is taught that Jesus is Lord, there are some who believe and some who do not believe. It's, it's such a, an all-consuming message. It's a, it's a hard message. It's an all-comprehensive message. It requires your very best for God's very best. And therefore, this all-or-nothing proposition, you can't ease your way into it. It is a yes or a no. It is a dividing point not just between cities, but between families, between families, between brothers. One believes and one doesn't believe in marriages. One spouse believes and the other does not. The multitude of the city was divided. and Some sided with the Jews and others sided with whom? The apostles. Now, the reason I want you to see the word apostle, apostolos, it, uh, it is a word for one who is, who is sent. Now, Paul uses this term of himself. In fact, he argues in Galatians, as we saw, that both the gospel he received on the road to Damascus and his apostleship was from Jesus, the resurrected Jesus himself. You remember that? Or how does Paul begin most of his letters? Paul, an apostle called by Jesus Christ. Paul calls himself an apostle. One of the criteria for an apostle is that they've seen the ministry of Jesus, but especially they have seen Jesus in his resurrected state. He's on the road to Damascus. He sees the bright light and sees the resurrected Jesus. Paul, an apostle. And I did not get, he says in Galatians, as we have seen, my apostleship from the pillars of Jerusalem, from James or John or Peter, I received my call. I'm a sent one by the resurrected Jesus. So Paul calls himself an apostle. Paul calls James, the brother of Jesus, an apostle. Paul calls a few other people apostles like Andronicus and Junius in Romans 16. But it's a very tight group. One doesn't simply get oneself called an apostle very lightly. 
In fact, the other, only other occurrence for Paul is in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's given us the resurrection appearances. He talks about the appearance to the 12, and then he says unto the apostles. So there's apostles that are other than the 12. You following me? But Luke only uses the word apostle for the 12. Not for anybody else with the exception of this chapter. So when he says some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles, if you know how sparingly that word is used, you'll know that this is a big deal. Look at verse 14. He calls specifically Saul and Barnabas apostles. So 14.4, 14.14, we have Luke using the word apostle for somebody other than the 12. And therefore, this is not a, a sermon on spiritual gifts. When we have the spiritual gifts, the reality is you look through them, have tongues cease? No, I don't think so. Uh, as teaching cease? No, I don't think so. Uh, apostles? Yes, I think so. That's the one where you say, there's not new apostles today. One had to have been there then and been part of the ministry of the resurrected Jesus to be called an apostle. That's the one that is no more and is used very tightly, this idea of an apostle. Well, verses 5 through 7, they get an opposition coming. And when a tent was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them. Now, I want you to notice that in Iconium, they plan to stone them. And they became aware of it. They fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, and the surrounding region where they continued to preach the gospel. So he gets word in Iconium that they're going to stone him. So they travel to Lyconia. They travel south here to the cities of Lystra and Derby, and not too far of a journey in those particular cases. The first part of the journey, just 20 miles there uh, in that case, then another 60 miles over. So they make the trip to the cities of Lyconia, and they begin to preach the gospel. Well, what happens there? At Lystra, verse 8, there's a man sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. You ever notice in miracles how often that is emphasized? Notice here, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. He didn't want you to think that the guy just happened to get better. The idea is never walked. Uh, Bert John 9, what's the condition of the man? A man who was born blind. So when these miracles occur, the recorder wants you to know it's not just a guy can see some days and can't see other days, born blind. It's not this guy has good days when his legs are working and bad days when he's paralyzed, lame from birth. Absolutely lame there in Lystra. This man was listening to Paul, verse 9, as he spoke, who then, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped up and began to walk. 
The multitude saw what Paul had done. They raised their voice, saying in the Iconian language, the gods have become men and have come down to us. The gods have become men and come down to us. Everybody knew, just like in John 9, everybody knows that's the guy that sits and begs. Everybody knew that this was the lame fella. And when Paul and Barnabas is there, and Paul commands a loud voice, hey, get up and walk, and he doesn't, just, he doesn't just step up. He leaps up, and he begins to walk. The multitudes see it, and they raise their voice. The gods become men. They're declaring an incarnation. Now, there was in this region a legend that Hermes, the god of speech, and Zeus, the head of the pantheon, had put on flesh and made a visit. They had become, made a village trip. And so when they see the power of Paul and Barnabas to cause a man born lame to leap, they begin to shout, man, these are not men among us. The gods have visited us. And immediately, now who do you think is the spokesperson? Who does all the talking when, when Paul and Barnabas are together? Uh, well, of course, it is Barab uh, it's Paul who does all the talking. So when you're naming the God of speech, you name Paul. One of the gentlemen in our church, now this is not a gender-specific comment. It was a comment made today by a gentleman. He said between his wife, I have a staff member witness. He said between his wife and his daughter, he didn't talk a whole lot. And that's why I probably had never heard him talk. He just, so his wife would be Hermes. He might be head of the pantheon. I don't know. He might be Zeus. But I learned today that she's Hermes. She's the talker. Well, Saul is the talker. And so they, they began to shout, the gods have become like men, have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because, look, verse 12, he talks so much. That's my translation, because he's the chief speaker, because he talks so much. And the, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just out of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices, notice, with the crowds. Now, all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas began to catch on to what's going on. Here is the priest of the temple right outside the city showing up with garland and with some beasts to be sacrificed to them. They, this is serious business. They've caused the lame man to leap and they're ready to sacrifice. They are sure that gods are walking in their midst. And so they call for the priest to come and that he's to bring the oxen with garlands to the gates. They wanted to offer a sacrifice for the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and, uh, and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out loud. They began to tear their robes and shout that this thing cannot be. Well, when does one rent one's garments in Scripture? One can rend one's garments when one is particularly mournful. You get bad news. Someone you love dies. There it goes. It's, it's a sign of protest sometimes, but it also can be a sign of a protest specifically against blasphemy. Now you think about it. Where in the New Testament does someone rend their garments as a protest against blasphemy? At the trial of Jesus, when they ask Jesus about his identity, and Jesus makes an answer, gives an answer that 
pretty well says he's the son of God. The high priest says it's done. When he rips his garment, that's a sign, blasphemy has occurred, and he is done. So in this case, it is Paul and Barnabas who rend their garments because they've heard blasphemy that someone is actually calling them the gods. Look at this in verse 14. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd crying out loud and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of the same nature of you. And preach the gospel in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and the earth and all that is within them. They tear their garments and they shout because they can see that it just might not end well. Turn back to chapter 12. It shouldn't be too far of a travel, and my Bible is two pages. Turn back to chapter 12 and verse 22. What happens in the Acts of the Apostles when someone is called a god and doesn't forsake the claim? What happens when the crowd says, you're a god, and you say, yeah, my garments are kind of shiny, aren't they? Well, it wasn't long ago, so I know you hadn't forgotten it. Look what happened when old Herod was there, verse 21. On appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat at the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God, the voice of a God. It's not even a man. Now, remember, they needed food from Herod, and so they were, they were you know, kind of kissing up to Herod. They wanted him to give them the food. And so they began to shout, look at that shiny garment. This is a God, isn't it? And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. So if you're in the Acts of the Apostles and somebody calls you a God, you better stop it right there, rent those garments and give God the glory. Else, verse 23, he was eaten by worms and died. Now I'd rather die first and then be eaten by worms. This is a this first time I've noticed, this is a bad word order right here in this text. But, verse 24, Herod was worm meat, but the word of God continued to grow and be multiplied. So, I guess if Paul and Barnabas had heard that story, though that one didn't necessarily involve them, and so when they began to say, you're Hermes and you're Zeus, they shout out, verse 15, why are you doing these things? We are merely men. And then he starts on a sermon. Now, to whom is he preaching? To Gentiles. Would this be a great place like Peter or like Paul in the previous places to start with Abraham and walk through Old Testament history? No. They don't know Old Testament history. That's not going to ring any bells for the Gentiles. and That means nothing to them. So when you start with a Gentile audience, you don't start with Abraham. Or deliverance, uh, you don't start with the Passover or the Exodus, the great act of the Old Testament. You don't talk about the prophet Isaiah. You talk about what can all men relate to, creation and provision. That's in your own conversations. It doesn't matter if it's the God of Abraham if I'm not a son of Abraham, right? So he starts out with that God is a living God as opposed to their gods that are not living gods. They are dead gods. They're idols. And this living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And 
yet he did not leave himself without a witness despite the disobedience of the nations that he did good and gave you rains. Who gives the rain? He creates. He gives the rains. He gives you the fruits, fruitful seasons. He satisfies your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrain the crowds from offering a sacrifice to them. So, the crowd really, really wants to sacrifice. They have seen a miracle, and he says, no, 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 it's not about me. It's about the living God, and let me tell you about this God. He created, and he provides your food. He gives you the rains, and, man, they are still ready to sacrifice. If you don't give a crowd satisfaction, it will turn. Jesus, story of Jesus, you remember the triumphal entry? Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he didn't become the kind of Jewish king they'd envisioned, the crowd turned. They want to sacrifice to, to Hermes and to Zeus, and they say no. And the crowd turns. Because, verse 19, Jews came from Antioch. Now that's the Pisidian Antioch here on the left. Remember they had run them out of the city, voted them out there? Remember when they got to Iconium, they had planned to do what? Stone him, and he had to leave? Well, these folks follow him. But Jews came from Antioch, that's 100 miles. You must really have a bone to pick. And Iconium, having won over the multitudes, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Wow. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11.25. I know I'm making you work. It's all right. It won't hurt you. 2 Corinthians 11.25. This is what I like to call Paul's litany of sorrow And in this litany of sorrow, he says, verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. How many times was he stoned? Once. There it is. Once I was stoned. And when they stoned, it wasn't throwing pebbles at you. They went for big stones to your head, trying to create a head injury or a chest injury injury. In fact, he was so knocked out by the violent tossing of the stones that they assumed him dead, or they would have continued. Now, is he dead? I don't think so. I, I think certainly God could have raised him from the dead. I, I believe God does raise from the dead. Obviously, I do. But that's not what the text says here in Acts 15. It says that they suppose him to be dead. It doesn't say that he is, that he is dead. They suppose him to, to be dead. And so they've stoned him and they have left him for dead. Look at verse 19. Supposing him to be dead, while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. So now they go a few more miles over. Now traveling back east to Derby. And after they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Now, what? If you've been stoned there, 
I think I'm heading another direction. If you look at your little map, we're trying to get him back over here to Antioch over here. He's already at Derby. There's no reason to go back there through all that trouble where you've stirred up all the Jews and Gentiles. You just come on 150 miles around the corner, you, you land back home and say, we had a good trip, and you've got a bump on my head, and you're done with the missionary trip. That's if I'm planning the trip. But Paul didn't plan them like Howie, and he goes back through each of these cities, cities that threaten his life, stoned once, threatened to be stoned another time. And so he travels back through those cities. After they preached the gospel, they returned to Lystra 21 and to Iconium and to Pisidian Antioch, strengthening the soul. Look what they do. Number one, they strengthen the souls of the disciples. Number two, they encourage them to continue in the faith. Number three, they say, you don't want to hear this and I don't want to hear this, but there is no greater truth in the gospel than these words right here. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. And every preacher who has ever promised you an easy entrance into the kingdom either doesn't know this story, hasn't read this story, or hasn't listened to a man who's been stoned and left dead preach. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If you're going to follow a guy who ends up on a cross, you can get some bruises if you're preaching the gospel. Through many tribulations, we must, if you didn't miss the must, we must enter the kingdom of God. I've said it a hundred times from this pulpit. There are three kind of people in this room. Those who are suffering right now, those who suffered yesterday, and those who will suffer tomorrow. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them, so the fourth thing they do is appoint elders. In every church, we'd call that pastors, ministers, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed, and they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Now notice, they're traveling all the way back through. They're going to these churches they started, and they're appointing the pastors and strengthening them and encouraging them. Uh, what questions you have since we've been gone? And they go to Adaliah there in 25 when they're now look they don't go back to Cyprus and they sail back to Antioch and they go back home the church that has set them apart the command of the Holy Spirit for the work they had accomplished when they arrived verse 27 they gathered the church together and began to report all the things that God had done with them now he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time time with the disciples the end of missionary journey number one chapter 15 not happening tonight don't get nervous <laughs> chapter 15 you know if you're going to do a sequel you got to set it up to get you back next Sunday night chapter 15 is the pivotal chapter in Acts, and, and certainly a pivotal chapter in the New Testament. The Gentiles at 
Syria, Antioch have believed, Gentiles at Pisidia and Antioch have believed, all these cities, some Jews and Gentiles have believed, things are getting away from the mother church. We know Cornelius has believed in the Ethiopian eunuch, and we got all these folks who are not sons of Abraham believing, and so the church finally has to get together and make a decision, what are we going to do? We're going to have a little court scene, we're going to have witnesses. Should you let them in? Should you not let them in? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they not need to be circumcised? We're going to have a definitive word on the position of Gentiles in the early church when they have a meeting next week. And I'll give you a hint. It will be neither Paul nor Peter who have the final word, but there'll be another character. And if you attend Tuesday noon, you already know the answer. There'll be another character who will have the power of the room to say how it's going to go. Let us pray. Oh God, may we preach with boldness and may we, be ha- may we have strong faith though we enter your kingdom through much tribulation. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.